and welcome back! Uh, long time no speak, but I'm sure I covered this in the intro, so I'm just going to get straight into the episode. So today we are going to be talking about the Matildas and Australian football. Um, so me, if you don't know, I'm Scottish, so I'm going to be talking about this from an outsider's perspective, but as I'm recording this, this is a few hours before kickoff of the Women's World Cup final between England and Spain, and I just felt a need to talk about one of the host countries, Australia because of their relationship with football over the years and what it's like at the moment and where I think it's going to be heading. So yeah, let's get into this. So as I am sure you all know, uh, the Women's World Cup is like the largest women's sporting event in the world, uh, which just gives footballers an opportunity to like represent their country at the highest level and on the global stage. So the World Cup really is it's like as big as the Olympics or like it's one of your main goals that you want to win the World Cup. Yeah. So as sport in Australia is hasn't really been focusing on football at all in its history, which we will go into a little bit uh, in a moment or so. Uh, but yeah, sport in Australia. So I was doing a little bit of research before this episode even came out. And like the FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand has set a whole new tournament attendance record, like a world high, as well as the Australia's uh, semi-final watch uh, was also the most watched TV programme on record in the country. So with this in mind, there's lots of eyes on. We're going to be talking a bit more about those stats later on also, but we've got eyes on at the minute on this game. By this game, I mean football in general, not one particular match. Um, Yeah, so... While I was also researching, I came across a table. Now, if you know anything about me, I love graphs, I love tables, I love all of that. Uh, I am very much a statistics kind of girl. Now, it had the most searched sports, the most attended sports, and the most participants in a sport, in kind of like a top 10 ranking system. Now, in the most searched, yeah, uh, football comes in at third, with cricket and AFL, uh, obviously, uh, coming above football then the most attended football doesn't even come into the top 10 and then most participants well yeah it's not there either I don't know how accurate this table is but from my assumptions coming from outside of the country I would say this is pretty accurate if I do say so myself but like I'm not in the country I'm not experiencing it so yeah football being the third most searched now I I think this was done a month ago updated a month ago from what I saw. I don't know if that's the most accurate, but football being the most searched, that could literally be about anything. So it could be, because we know Australia's got a lot of expats, so whether they're researching about teams back at home, wherever that might be, so like European countries, uh, searching to find... Uh, football comes in at third, with cricket and AFL, uh, obviously, uh, coming above football then the most attended football doesn't even come into the top 10 and then most participants well yeah it's not there either I don't know how accurate this table is but from my assumptions coming from outside of the country I would say this is pretty accurate if I do say so myself but like I'm not in the country I'm not experiencing it so yeah football being the third most searched now I I think this was done a month ago updated a month ago from what I saw. I don't know if that's the most accurate, but 
football being the most searched, that could literally be about anything. So it could be because we know Australia's got a lot of expats, so whether they're researching about teams back at home, wherever that might be, so like European countries, uh, searching to find out their home team scores. Um, yeah. Uh, the fact that football teams are some of the biggest and most supported sports teams in the world. So you could even just have fans that like watching it. However, most attended. The fact it's not even in the top 10 shows you, well, there's not really opportunities to engage with football in Australia. Well, there is, but not... <laughs> I've just I've just um had the look further down that column. And it says dog racing is number ten. What? How is that still a thing? Um sorry, that just I'm not laughing because it's a good thing, I'm laughing because I'm just genuinely shocked because I didn't see it until now. Oh my word. Oh wait, no. Football does come in. It's at number five most attended. However, it's calling it soccer, so that's why I kinda disregarded it. <laughs> oh dear. Uh so yeah. It's coming out number five, which shows you, so the ones that are above it are AFL, horse racing, rugby league, and motorsports, which is understandable because AFL, Australian, like, it's literally just Australian. Horse racing, quite shocked how high up it is, to be honest, but that's because I don't know much about it in Australia. Rugby league, yeah, they're good. <laughs> uh, motorsports, well, yeah, they, they really go in, like, they, they have placed funding there with, like, the F1 race and also just general opportunities to get involved. And then number five. Ooh, it's actually one above cricket, but I think that's just genuinely because football is more attended than cricket. So yeah. Um yeah, and then in most most participants, oh my word, that was posh. <laughs> um <coughs> yeah. So it's not even in the top ten. So now that we have a general overview about where football kind of is in Australia like it's just there it's not focused on it's not one of you know like most little kids when they get placed into sports clubs I don't necessarily believe they're going to be placed in a football club um like a kids session kind of thing I don't know what you call them it's like a training session but for kids it's like an after school club I guess yeah We'll go with that. Uh, so yeah, now that you know how important or, well, less important it is in compared to other sports in the current day, which I think will be changing after this tournament. Um, so as of tomorrow, this table, I think, will be a little bit changing. Uh, so let's just talk a little bit about the history and get to the backstory about why this is the way that it is. So in summary, I have well, I've actually copied over this sentence, uh, so, so I'm just going to read it out because it makes perfect sense and would be better than what I would come out with. So, Australia is a three-time OFC champion, one-time AFC champion and one-time AFF champion. The team has represented, the team being, like, the women's Matildas. <laughs> I can't get my words right and I'm trying to do a podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, the Matildas have represented Australia at the FIFA Women's World Cup on eight occasions, once as co-host, which is this year, and at the Olympic Games on four occasions. However, neither tournament they have won it. So yeah, we will get now into the history of the team and yeah, just a little chat about kind of how it is the way that it is. So the Australian Women's Soccer Association, AWSA, uh, was founded in 1974 
and then they competed the following year. However, this team has only officially been recognised in May this year, with all 16 members of the team officially now being awarded caps for their country. I think that's pretty shocking how <laughs> it's took that long to finally get their caps, but I guess that's women's football. Um, hopefully will not be the future of women's football. Now, they... They, they've actually their national team is primarily made up of players from New South Wales and Western Australia and the inaugural Women's World Invitational Tournament in Taipei which is in Taiwan uh, they attended that so essentially we've got only two particular oh oh no if you heard that sigh like um, 30 seconds ago it's because I forgot what the I really should know this right let me look this up while I'm talking so what is Is it, is it a territory? Oh, I really should be better prepared for this. They're, they're called... Ah, oh, right, yeah. I'm getting mixed up. So they've got six states and two internal territories. I was thinking it was the other way about. My mistake. Uh, so yeah, we've got two states that um majority of their players come from. Uh, and that really just shows you how... Well, there's probably going to be one more than the other. Uh, so wherever the team was based back then, like their team trainings and stuff like that probably gave priority to the players from that state so we already see like an injustice basically uh, and that was well it's not even 50 years ago <laughs> like that's insane pardon sorry <clears throat> so yeah we basically see that from the very start their lack of resources um yeah, they practically didn't have enough resources to go up against any other team due to, like, travel arrangements or uh, actual training or, or anything, really. And it's it's quite shocking. So then in the 80s and 90s, I'm just going to kind of skim over some of the rest of the history. So they, Australia first played in the Oceania. Uh, Oceania. Yeah. This is one word I cannot say, so <laughs> very interesting. Oceania? Okay, whatever. Cup. Uh, in 1983 in New Caledonia, which lost against New Zealand, which, and then because of their um, lack of funding, etc., they were practically just playing New Zealand the whole time, being the closest nation that wasn't their own. <laughs> uh, and throughout the 80s, it's important to note that the team did not have an official playing kit of their own. It was all either hand-me-downs from the men's team or donated. I was about to call them outfits. They are outfits, yeah. So their kits were either spares or just, you know, like when you're in school and you see the box of, like, lost property like, and it's just jumpers and that. It was probably a similar case to that. And, like, even though they're probably very proud to be wearing the strip, they, like, never had a kit that fitted them. Is it? Is that a territory? Oh, I really should be better prepared for this. They're, they're called... Ah, oh, right, yeah. I'm getting mixed up. So they've got six states and two internal territories. I was thinking it was the other way about. My mistake. Uh, so yeah, we've got two states that um majority of their players come from. Uh, and that really just shows you how... Well, there's probably going to be one more than the other. Uh, so wherever the team was based back then, like their team trainings and stuff like that, probably gave priority to the players from that state. So 
we already see like an injustice basically uh and that was well it's not even 50 years ago <laughs> like that's insane in the late 80s australia had finally encountered american and european teams for the first time in the 1987 women's world Inf invitational tournament in taiwan again uh and then the 1980 FIFA Women's Invitation Tournament, which added as like a, the next one added as a qualifier for the World Cup, and the winner was determined. Um, in the late 80s, Australia had finally encountered American and European teams for the first time in the 1987 Women's World Inf Invitational Tournament in Taiwan again, uh, and then the 1980 FIFA Women's Invitation Tournament which added as like a the next one added as a qualifier for the World Cup and the winner was determined like best in group because well even then there wasn't enough groups which we will see a running theme <laughs> so in the nine so in the 90s they had more qualifications for the World Cup the Oceania tournaments and just before 1995, the nickname for the team was just the female Socceroos because of the male squad, which is the Socceroos. And so in 1995, uh, they joined a broadcast naming competition for the team. And there was five names that people could vote for. And they chose the Matildas from the song Waltzing Matilda. And at first, I, I, yeah, from what I've seen, I don't think the players were too happy. And it was just like a joke but now you'll see that they wear that name with a lot more how should I say it a bit more happiness and iconicness I guess that they're able to turn that name into a different meaning from what they've done and so finally in 1996 which again wasn't that long ago um the team entered into its first kit sponsorship deal with, oh dear, we've come across another brand of different, that I do not know how to say. Is it Asics? I think? Right. Anyway, we're going to go with that. Um, the team, yeah, so they entered the sponsorship deal. It was the first one. And it's because a representative of the country, uh, of the country, of the company, uh, had become a fan of women's football uh, due to... An acquaintance of a former teammate, uh, team member, and so they designed the first ever sponsored strip, which made it lighter and more comfortable for the players. So yeah, essentially they had a bit of an all over up until the two thousands, and in fact, with with a lot of women's sport that was back then in particular, we see because the players just want to play football and the managers. I'm not going to talk on behalf of Australia, but from my knowledge and understanding here, um, a lot of players had to end up fundraising in... I don't, I don't know how you would say it, because it's like a whole spectrum of things, but essentially they would either take on like three jobs or so just so that they could train um, doing like fundraisers, and that just, and you even put, they built out their profile, which guaranteed them a spot in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, uh, which is great because it was a home crowd and all the rest. The early part of Australia's football history is very complex. 
And I'm only skim skimming over this history quite quite slowly actually. I need to pick up oh I need to pick up the pace a little bit. But essentially the team uh or well no not the team, the AWSA went into liquidation because of debts and in between that so many players decided to retire after the Olympics and this problems with liquidation uh because their futures were not in their hands and it was not bright following the Olympics. So However, in 2003, they qualified for the Oceania, we don't know how to say that word, uh, and qualified for the 2003 Women's World Cup, where they finished in the first round. However, I personally would say that this moment right there was the first proper turnaround uh, turn of where Australian football has managed to gain momentum from. Put this into perspective, 2003, I was already born, so the fact that it's taken that long in order to get into like kind of like a foundational state just shows you how much lack of support and funding the team and just generally football in Australia was at that point and it is why I took some time to go over that so yeah from there they have done many many things from returning to the Olympics in 2004 in Athens where they won their first ever Olympic Games again <laughs> first ever Olympic game against Greece and managed to qualify for the quarterfinals. Now then in 2007 it was the FIFA Women's World Cup in China uh, where they came up against Brazil in the elimination match but they managed to get up until the quarterfinal stage. Amazing. However they had a little bit of a blip getting into the 2008 Olympics uh, in 2007 because they lost both their home and away matches in the final round of the qualifiers. However, we skip on a little bit and yeah, in 2010, the AFC Women's Asian Cup in China, the Matildas qualified for this and managed to get all the way to the final and it was played in wet conditions and well, they managed to be the first senior football team to make the final in the AFC make a final in the AFC so the this was the first ever time that anyone male female anyone else had ever made it to a final which is history making which was only 13 years ago may I also add like 13 years ago wow <laughs> like ah I can't believe that was even 13 years ago you know because that was in 2010 now, I still think of 2010 as, like, the other day. So, yeah. Essentially, we have a lot more Olympic Games, a few more World Cups, a few more Asian Cups. And, yeah, so up until present day. Now, apart from, as I recap, there are three-time Oceania uh, champion, there are one-time AFC champion, one-time AFF champion. Now... Even in the Women's World Cup and the Olympic Games, they have never won either of the World Cup or Olympic Games. Which is... So the fact that Australia and New Zealand got chosen to host is a real opportunity. Well, has been a real big opportunity for them to just prove that football is for Australia. And especially the people who, current, uh, who have been playing and who have been it for there in such highs and such lows. So I'm just going to point out a few statistics that I came across over the years. So in 2016, 
the Matildas uh, had two preseason friendly matches. I think I think it was preseason. Yeah. Uh, um, the first match was sold out, and an even larger crowd of nearly seventeen thousand people attended the next match three days later. So that was only in twenty sixteen. Now, if you think about that, wow, that that's like yesterday. <laughs> that is genuinely yesterday. <laughs> and the fact that it took so long to bear in mind their matches before that. I think their highest. Um, I can't remember. It was around 10,000 was their highest attendance number. And the fact that 17,000 and a sold out crowd in 2016. Wow. Yeah. They've had an, a very interesting kind of history. If you want to look more into it, I definitely suggest doing that. Because it's so interesting to see. I know I just said interesting about 15 million times. But I, I was just reading something at the same time. And you know, like, how it's, like, on replay. Well, anyway, let's get on to the present day. So the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. And they became the first senior Australian team to make a World Cup semi-final. Now, if that's not iconic, I don't know what is. So the fact we've gone from football being one of the top three, so it's a podium-sitting, most-searched sport, then it's kind of, like, there or thereabouts, most attended. I think it's just because of the how easily accessible football is uh, to just go and watch and understand what's happening and then most participants will I think it's gonna be creeping up the rankings massively now that this World Cup is about to come to a close speaking of people and like the history of football in Australia so today is the final between England and Spain now I saw a tweet it was about the English team but I think it's pretty applicable to um, the Australian heritage with their football relationship. <laughs> and I I'm just going to read it straight word, from word, word for word, which is when England men won the World Cup, there were 16 teams in the tournament and they had never been banned from playing football. So yeah, you're right. Should the women do it on Sunday, the scale of the achievement is not all the same. It's far greater. And to give a little bit of context, if you don't know, between 1921 and 1971, the English FA, FA effectively banned women from playing football which I think is quite fitting that they made it to the final Australia became co-host as well and both of them have had an extraordinary wow that's a big word from me uh, had had an extraordinary tournament so far that they've overcome so many obstacles to get to where they were from their original <coughs> oh my word that was a proper voice crack yeah so from their original name being the female socceroos to now being called the matildas and the the change in the name from female socceroos because well I, I don't know if this is accurate but probably they didn't know what to call them so they're just like ah oh, well we'll name them after the main men's team then getting their new name from a tv competition and having not so great connotations to now being able to change those con connotations to how well and how I can't emphasize just kind of almost how proud I am of them to prove everyone wrong essentially and I don't know if everyone saw or heard of this but when the Australian squad was presented with their 
shirts, uh, you know, like they do, and then they get their photos and that. Each shirt was given to them by a young female fan called Matilda. So I think it was, what, 23 Matildas, <laughs> young Matildas, were all giving the shirts over to the players. And I just thought that was a really touching moment because, well, now they have people to look up to, even though the players might not be called Matilda themselves, but they represent the Matildas. And the fact that young people now have, young females in particular in Australia that like football, have someone to look up to is really quite oh wow I've actually got a little like lump in my throat <laughs> and like tears starting to form oh my word uh but yeah so the team's image over the years versus now has grown massively as well as their fan base due to a whole host of different things now I think quite a few other sports should take note especially of this and if they're not engaging with this I I really don't know what to say so it's due to increased exposure, so we we know that increased exposure, increased eyes on, essentially means you're building a market for where sponsors want to come on. Now, sponsorship is very important, and I will get onto that in just a moment, but it also allows for people to develop their skills a lot more, which will result in more successful tournaments. And so with increased exposure, with successful tournaments as well as just generally skilled players who didn't have the opportunity to kind of get involved with before coming in at both international and club level is promising for the future to say the least now I don't know how much people pay attention to this or is it just me probably is just me but if you are like me you'll probably know so how much does the media play a role in the success of Australian football so far. Now, Australian matches are being broadcasted on Paramount Plus. Now, I don't know much about that, but I'm pretty sure that's a pay-to-watch, pay-per-view kind of subscription, I think. I'm not too sure. We'll move on. But it's also on free-to-air. However, in 2021, during the Olympics in Tokyo 2020, the Matildas broke the TV viewing records of any women's sports like any women's team sport in history. If that doesn't tell you about how much interest is there, I don't know what does. And media has the role of sharing that to everyone, or well, at least the people who are interested in it. But it will also get more people interested in it because, yeah, good games equals good results equals more fans. Like, <laughs> simple equation. Yes, the rap did just come into my head, but we are going to skip past that before I start rapping on the mic. So yeah, essentially, this uh, Women's World Cup, have, especially the match between, uh, or the game, I don't know, is it a match or a game? Hmm. I need to learn up on that. But the game between Australia and France averaged over 4 million viewers. And on Channel 7, uh, the Australia's Channel 7, uh, it peaked at around 7.2 million viewers, which is the most sporting event since, well, one of the events in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney itself. However, this is one thing that we should note, is that that number does not include live viewing, so if you're out and about watching it, it does not include pubs, stadiums, parties, it does not include social media clips, it does not like anywhere that you can see or watch the match, it does not include the viewers from there. How incredible is that? 
because the potential is there and the potential to ride on the back of this and grow football in Australia amazing now now if you're abroad so like everywhere except Australia practically uh, the Matildas also occupied the front and back page of almost every or well from what I've seen every but I'm sure it's not all of them of every ma major newspaper in the country so when you're going to your shops getting your I don't know your weekly shots and you see the newspapers it's going to be the Matildas they're there they're involved in your life and it talks a lot about day-to-day -day cultures because there's also some murals or a mural I'm not too sure I think it's a few uh, of some of the team members which was painted on Bondi Beach and of course I'm sure you've heard of Bondi Beach and it's like it is kind of almost a tourist destination as well so you've got the influence of one of the most visited sites in Australia mixed with the day-to-day -day culture of how football can play into that giving people but it's not even just football like this I was reading up on this and <laughs> tickets for the game, uh, the matches out in Australia and that, have almost all been as much in demand as the current Taylor Swift concerts. Like, that's just saying something because I don't know if you're paying attention to it, but the Taylor Swift concerts are... It's a war out there. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, yeah, the fact that sport creates and contributes to, what, culture and the culture and national identity that a country has is very it shows what Australia is really about now I, I was also reading up on uh, a few things about how how this is shaping people's like everyday life so because of the ups and downs and perseverance that they've had to endure over the years a lot of workplaces out in Australia now are rethinking their gender equality um, rules and regulations I guess you could say and also about like the gender pay gap as well a lot of action is being talked about and how we can well resolve this I guess um I don't know if resolve is the right word but essentially it's now a topic that is being discussed in quite a few major enterprises and organizations around Australia and I'm sure around the world as well now this is an important thing to note because Australia and New Zealand, the hosts, if you think about travelling there you normally think about the long flight or long layover flights that you know, from the UK in particular it's normally you have to fly out to Dubai and then fly out then out to Australia. However, that just shows you how far away from, well, Europe Australia is. Now Europe really is the hub for football and a few other sports. But I'm not going to get into that today. Uh, we can talk about that on another episode. But this just gives another another leaf. Is that a leaf on a book? Is that the phrase? I'm not too sure. Um, another string to their bow. Let's say that phrase instead because I'm not too sure <laughs> if a leaf on a book is the right. Oh dear. Can you tell I woke up early this morning? Uh, yeah. So the connectedness to the world quite a lot of the time people think that their dreams might be a little bit out of sight because of how far away those countries are from other continents really however like they try and make it work there but quite a lot of the time people have to move elsewhere in order to make those dreams happen and the fact that they've proved that it's doable just shows you how 
powerful this can be for the future. Now, speaking about connectedness to the rest of the world, I hmm, I do have to mention very slightly um, the historical context. So the fact that England is in the final in Australia and them being the, well, with England being one of the major people who colonised um, Australia, it's quite... There's quite a historical lesson in context there. However, England are being welcomed uh, by by the Australians. I was trying to think of the word for Australians there, but essentially, England have been welcomed into this competition as like everyone else. And I think trying to redefine relationships and redefine where expectations, redefine perceptions. I think that's what a lot of learning has taken from this um, this competition at the end of the day. Now, talking about in influencing people from redefining expectations and stuff like that, I think it's important to note that the fact that the free-to-air rights holders, Channel 7, took the broadcast to its main channel in all of Australia's states and territories. Now, this only happens for, like big, big moments in history and I think that just shows you how much they're really leaning into this as an opportunity to grow and to better themselves as a country because also you've got to think this will trickle down into the grassroots of Australian football. More young people will want to get involved, more people will want to go see matches if they know that their team are really good to get even to the semi semi-finals after all that they've gone through. The fact that the media will be sharing their stories and people will be like, oh, what's this all about? Well, getting more people interested will always get more people there and supporting the sports that we know and love. And I think that's what we need to pay more attention to. But that is, of course, in my opinion. Now, I came across this, and so it's like, in 2007, I know I briefly mentioned this, but the, the Matildas had staged their send- I'm reading this straight from a website- they had staged their send-off fixture uh, before the World Cup in front of 1,186 people. And then it increased to 2,866. And then increased to 4,277. And then 6,834 fans in subsequent years. And now, this year, the send-off was a sold-out 50,000 people capacity stadium with sold out fans and crowds at each of the Australian stadium, like host stadiums. The misconceptions of women's sport, and more importantly, the place of women in Australia today is very much changing. And I think the worrying thing is if this is not continued, because today is technically the last day as I'm recording this. And I hope that this doesn't end with the tournament. I hope it's something that they can pick up and realise that they can do this and set an example for other countries as well. Speaking about other countries, when it comes to sponsorship and advertising, the fact that these, so Australia and New Zealand, came together to host a major competition can really lift up sport in general in other countries. So, like, I know there was talk about the Commonwealth Games going to oh 
or I don't know what it's called, but um, all the different little islands and having each of them host something. All the like very small islands that compete in the Commonwealth Games, like they they were thinking about coming together uh, to host one because of well speaking about Australia, uh, they dropped out of uh, hosting the next one uh, quite late notice actually, uh, just because they realised they couldn't do it anymore. But what I mean is that if you're able to share it between other places. That means that you have then a chance to invest in resources and future generations as well as instead of spending it all on infrastructure. So for instance with climate change, which I'm actually going to talk a little about a little about <laughs> in a future episode and the effect of sport and climate change. But I hopefully will be recording that sometime soon. But um yeah. With that, the winter games in particular is a threat, the Olympic the Winter Olympic Games. Is that a threat? Now, by spread, the Milano Cortina 2026 Games is already spread across that area. It's not necessarily one city taking the host. They're going to wherever has the facilities to already host these events. And I think that's the future of sport, is going and refreshing what we have, but then investing into future is what I think a lot has. And I saw a quote from Sam Kerr, actually. Uh, and she was talking about the funding in a, uh, of football in Australia. And she genuinely said, we need funding everywhere. Like, meaning that from player development to grassroots to kit to, you know, training. And then there was another quote that she added onto this, and which says and states, hopefully this tournament kind of changes that because that's the legacy you leave, not what you do on the pitch. The legacy is what you do off the pitch. End quote. Now, I fully make her right. I think it's how people react, how people will ultimately, how they interact with this. And so it's, at the end of the day, the result doesn't matter so much. The fact that it's happening needs to be invested in. And so, like, your actions definitely speak louder than words. And so we need the media to continue playing the stories of Australia's stars, football stars. I, I, I guess that's what you call them, yeah? Athletes? Yeah? <laughs> Star athletes? I'm not too sure. <laughs> uh, I'm still not down with the lingo, as you can see, in this episode. But, um, yeah, so they, they've been re breaking records on and off the pitch. The records on the pitch will bring eyes on, but to keep those eyes and people, ultimately, and further stories, we need to see action off the pitch as well. Because, the, for instance, the England-Australia semi-final match turned out to be the most-watched TV programme on record in Australia. And it was averaging more than 7 million viewers, and at one point nearly 90% share, which means that nine out of every ten televisions in the country were switched on during that game. That that's amazing. The fact that the fact that yeah, just so many people are invested and wanting to see this means that surely the future is only bright for football in Australia. To conclude, because it is I've almost been talking an hour already. Wow has time passed. So, the future of sport in Australia, particularly football, and how can this influence others? We need to 
use the game or the sport or anything to attract people initially. We need funding to back that and to actually have to create opportunities for people to get involved in it too. So whether that be running more matches on free-to-air, whether that be investing in grassroots and other clubs, whether that be... We need the people, we need the companies, we need the culture of Australia to get behind their team. And I know I talk about Australia in this episode, but it's a global message. We need to be backing this because it has more of a life impact because it because it tugs on that heartstring that people hold so close to their chest. Wow, that was that was inspirational. Wow. But ultimately it is that support and the allyship to bring you into real life that shows you the power of sport. And you don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to you just need opportunity as well as the ambition and dreams to in order with that funding in place in order to grow the sport. And if you grow the sport, it grows Australia. This might have been a bit of a deep ending. Uh, I cannot lie, this, maybe not. But ultimately, I think, yeah, this final match, I just hope that, like, I don't even follow football, necessarily. But the fact that even I know all that they're, well, not all, but you know what I mean. Even I know what's happening in the Women's World Cup. is shock. I was going to say it's shocking. But it's shockingly good coverage. And it needs to be done across the world. It needs to be done so that investment goes. If you're looking to develop a community and a culture, I think sport is the way to go. Ultimately, I think it is. Because Australia at the minute... Honestly, in my opinion, I think they're going through a bit of a... I don't know if this is the right word, but a regenerate, a regenerated identity, if you get what I mean. Like, they're trying to modernise, they're trying to grasp back their history. And I think the only way that you can really do this is by getting everyone together for a shared cause. But in order to do that, you need to get that shared cause first. And so football, in this case, has been given international attention to their plans and I think this has really given them the boost that they wanted as a country and can start getting action into motion now because from this there's been opportunities built that I I don't know if anyone would have I'm sure there was but the dreams of the people I don't think would have ever expected how well this tournament has got And I hope with this that it will continue. Because of this, I... (laughs) Am I slowly becoming an Australian fan throughout this episode? Yeah. Honestly, they've gone through so much. If you look through their history, more than what I was talking about, uh, because I did kind of ramble on a little bit, um, if you've made it this far, fair play to you. I commend you. Mass... Commend? Yeah. (laughs) I've really been struggling today with my vocabulary. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it's just a few hours until the final kickoff, and I, I hope Australia knows how well they've done so far, and I just hope that they can keep this momentum. So, with that, I think is the end of the episode. I, yeah, I, I think we've done pretty good. 
because I've essentially been ranting at you for the past hour. Uh, if you've got it on two times speed, I do not blame you because I did pause multiple times during this. Um, yeah. So I hope you have a good day. I, I hope this comes out the day after I recorded this. So once we know who won the Women's World Cup. Uh, if not, it will be out sometime that week. <laughs> and yeah, I'm going to be recording another episode, I think, today as well. So we are, yeah, we're going to get the ball rolling again. And so with that being said, I will see you next time.